there are these two young fish swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? Don Hall, and this is the Peculiar Journeys Podcast. Peculiar Journeys is a weekly storytelling podcast designed to see the water that surrounds us. Welcome back to the podcast. Um, I just want to take a moment at the top to thank my few Patreon subscribers, Rebecca, Mike, Todd, Matthew, Vanessa, Tony, and of course, my mom, Jackie. Given the day-to-day hustle of freelancing and making art, the contributions are huge and are much appreciated. I also received a correspondence from someone, Childress808, last week, and she writes to me, Don, I love your tattoo stories, and I'm wondering how old you think someone should be to get one. My mom says no way because she thinks it'll make me look slutty. What do you think? Well, Childress808, while I disagree with your mom that ink will make you look slutty, not that there's anything wrong with looking slutty, mind you, I think that you might want to wait until you're no longer living with her before you seriously consider permanent body art. Yes, my mother not only bought my first tattoo and got her own at the same occasion, I hadn't lived under her roof for almost 25 years at the time. You know, as you move on from being a kid in a house, your relationship with your parents will change. Mine changed for the better, and thus I have a deep friendship with my mom. I would suggest you at least start paying rent on your own before you ink yourself, but that's just my advice. All right. The third tattoo in line was February of 2010, and it is a quote from Jack Kerouac's On the Road. I'd read it in high school, and it was kind of life-transforming. I never forgot the line from the fifth chapter. Our battered suitcases were piled on the sidewalk again. We had longer ways to go, but no matter, the road is life. It was during 2009 that the idea of using significant quotes from literature for my ink hit me. Text only. It was also 2009 when I met Alice. A punch in the face, if you've never received one, is a slightly terrifying prospect. Once, however, you have been solidly popped in the jaw or nose by a clenched fist, the terror of the unknown gives way to the mundane nature of the act. Yes, it can hurt, but like a slap, the pain is generally only accentuated by the shock of it rather than the pain, unless, of course, you get hit by somebody really packing a wallop. So when she punched me in the face around nine times, it wasn't the physical violence that hurt. When she calmed down, took one of my cigarettes and waited for the cops to arrive, that didn't really hurt. When the cops arrived and her first words were, I'd like to report an assault, he assaulted me, that hurt. My first stepfather was Dennis Coley. I recall as a five-year-old kid watching him beat my mother with his fists until she couldn't walk. I remember me trying my level best to stop him from smashing his fist into my mother's head, being hurled down a flight of stairs. I remember one night when my mother had had all she could take. 
throwing my clothes and some toys into a black hefty bag and stealing away with me and my sister, all while being terrified we would wake him up into the night. The moment when my mom's brown AMC gremlin wouldn't start was one of the most heart-stopping moments of an absolute white-hot fear I have ever known in my life. Seven years later, Dennis came back into the picture. I didn't know why my mother was seeing him until one night I heard them arguing in the front yard. My mother rushed into the house, slamming the door shut and screamed, keep him out, and she ran to the kitchen to call the police. I positioned myself between the hallway wall and door and felt him smash into it over and over in an attempt to get into the house. To this day, I don't know what would have happened if I couldn't hold it shut, but the idea gives me a sickening feeling in my stomach. I never saw him again. The facts are that I sat in judgment of my mother for years. I felt she was stupid for being with him, that she was loose and slutty for coming back to him, that it was her fault. She brought his wrath upon herself. She couldn't just go along with things. She nagged him or made him jealous. She was asking for it. Instead of blaming him, I blamed her. So when Alice punched me in the face around nine times, it wasn't the physical violence that hurt. For me, the idea, the concept of me ever striking a woman for any reason at all is as remote and impossible as the idea, concept of me shooting sparks out of my ass and flying around the room right now. It was, it has never happened. I can't think of almost any reason aside from a threat to my life or someone else that I would, that would provoke me to hit a woman. Watching my mother suffer the abuse, in spite of the fact that I believed she provoked it, made me angry beyond understanding, but I never took it out on those physically smaller than I. Bar fights with guys twice my size? Sure. But never under any circumstances have I ever hit a woman. Our nine months of dating never indicated that that night could be happening. She was a justice advocate. She represented incarcerated inmates who were wrongfully accused. She was dramatic, but not violent. But after nine months of dating, it occurred to me that none of her friends or family even knew I existed. I had become her secret boyfriend, one she enjoyed in the privacy of her home, but was embarrassed to claim in the light of day. So I split with her. She wasn't ready for it. She came over to my home drunk several times and finally wouldn't leave. I called a friend thinking the added person would shame her into leaving, and she lost it. She swung wide and hard and punched me full flush into the temple, knocking my glasses off. Then she proceeded to punch me in the mouth, the nose, the jaw. She became unhinged like an animal trapped in a corner, and the rage of rejection changed this intelligent, compassionate leftist into a red meat-eating, teeth-bearing creature of malicious revenge. My friend arrived and called the cops. She sat down defiantly and decided to wait for the law. She cursed my friend, leveling her anger now at him, but only in the most hateful verbal manner. They arrived. She accused me of assaulting her. They didn't believe her, asked if I wanted to press charges, no, and took her home. An hour later, I heard the squeal of brakes outside and her footsteps running from my front door, and she tried to break into my home the same way Dennis had when I was 12, and it was like a David Lynch film. I held the door as she tried to force her way in. She stopped and smashed my window, thinking, or not really thinking at all, that she could somehow crawl through the broken glass to some end. When she'd calmed down and started begging for me to let her in, that 
made her act this way, that I did this, I made her act this way, that she loved me, that if I would only let her back in, she could make it up to me. I heard echoes of Dennis after he had beaten my mother. I hid my iPhone, now complete with a cracked screen, and recorded her through the door, getting her to admit that I had not assaulted her in any way for no other reason than to cover my ass in case she decided to lie again. And, like my mother, I went back to her. I moved in with her. I pretended, because she insisted that I do, that the entire evening was my fault, that I provoked her. I should have just gone along with her behavior. I was to blame for this bizarre, unexpected night. I never spoke of it after that in her presence because those were the rules. I couldn't mention it ever again to anyone or she would leave me until I couldn't take it anymore and I left her with what clothes I could gather in a suitcase in the middle of the night. So it wasn't the punch in the face that hurt. It was the reminder that even having lived through my mother's mistakes, I made the exact same mistakes, that my experience had not made me wiser. What hurt was how unfairly I had judged my own mother for her inability to release herself from the past. Alice and I met online, Match.com. Our first date was at an Italian place on Irving Park Road just between her place in Portage Park and mine in North Center. I didn't have a car and my driver's license had been suspended a few years prior, a circumstance of my first divorce and a huge toll of unpaid parking tickets left as a parting gift from her. So I took the bus. She was lovely and skittish, but self-possessed and funny. I thought I was nailing the date, but it turned out she just wanted to go home and feed her dog. When she realized I'd taken the bus, she was even more unimpressed but still offered to give me a ride home. Again, I thought I was rocking this date. As she dropped me off and we kissed, more of a lean in and her deciding, eh, whatever, but the kiss, it was electric, and we soon became a couple. I spent more time trying to please her than almost anything else, and trying to please her was hard. She was finicky. She was rude to waiters. For someone as involved with social justice, she was incredibly entitled as only the Korean daughter of two doctors could be. Worse, Alice didn't seem to like me much. Not that there's always that much to like, but odd considering we were having sex on the regular. At Christmas of 2009, I decided to get her a one-of-a-kind necklace from the MCA store. It was beautiful and goddamned expensive. When she opened it, after me explaining how hard it had been to find... Her response was simple. I don't love it, she said. I probably won't wear it. This is not to say that it was all bad. I wouldn't have stayed if it was all bad. But it was by far the most contemptuous relationship I'd ever been in. We fought far more than not. Somehow, we both had resigned ourselves for settling for great sex. But terrible companionship. In 1954, Jack Kerouac had a vision in a Catholic church in Lowell, Massachusetts, that told him that the real meaning of beat was beatific, in the sense of converting alienation into spiritual transcendence. On the Road, first published in 1957, epitomized to the world what became known as the Beat Generation, and made Kerouac one of the most controversial and best-known writers of his time. 
Upon publication, On the Road met with both praise and wild enthusiasm from papers as diverse as The Village Voice and The New York Times, and an equal, if not greater, measure of skepticism and critical dismissal by the mainstream literary establishment. Rather than representing a new trend in American literature, as Kerouac had claimed, On the Road was criticized for presenting uncouth characters such as Allen Ginsberg as Carlo Marx and William Burroughs as Old Bull Lee, and the frantic fringe of delinquents. One of the most sarcastic put-downs came from author Truman Compote, who responded to Kerouac's boast that he had created the original manuscript within a three-week burst of writing with the snide comment, that isn't writing, it's typing. In addition, within the avant-garde literary movements on the East and West Coast, there was suspicion following the 1957 obscenity trial for Allen Ginsberg's poem Howl and publication of On the Road as covered in Time, Life, and Newsweek, many radical artists felt that the sudden fame of the beat phenomenon as a whole owed much to sophisticated packaging and promotional techniques. In fact, more than a few poets saw Kerouac's friend Allen Ginsberg, a former ad man, as more a crowd-pleasing publicity hound than a serious poet. Well, I read, all that aside, I read On the Road first in high school, like I said, and subsequently in college and in my truck as I lived as a homeless guy in it the first few months upon arriving the shores of Lake Michigan. Like so many young men before, I was taken with the romance and poetry of Kerouac, and specifically of this novel. It spoke to me, as they say. It spoke of a haunting self-reflection, a desire to journey from place to place, and a resilience in the face of obstacles. It spoke of nonconformism, and it spoke in a metaphor that felt right to me, of a lone traveler on the road carrying a suitcase. It occurred to me that we're all born with a suitcase, an empty suitcase. Outside is pristine. And as we travel down the road, we put things in our suitcase and we add stickers to the outside that tell people where we've been and the places of importance on our journey. The stickers trumpet that we went to school at this or that high school, this or that university. They declare that we've worked jobs at various locations and have the pictures of the people we have loved, sometimes beautiful idyllic photographs, sometimes exaggerated caricatures. The outside of the suitcase gives other travelers the barest sense of who we are, and we determine which stickers get displayed, which stickers get covered up by others. We determine the outward advertisement of who we are to the other pilgrims moving down the road and the crossroads we encounter. We do not, however, get to choose what goes in the suitcase. The items that fill the suitcase are the things we experience along the road. An underdog plush toy given to you when you were five years old and in the hospital with a life-threatening disease. An empty bottle of gold schlager from the blackout drinking binges of your college days. A Polaroid your sister took of you taking a shit that she displayed to her friends. The cheap Walgreens saucepan you bought when you moved to a new city and arrived with no kitchen items whatsoever. The glass wedding bear groom Christmas ornament given to you as a companion to the wedding bear bride. A Bukowski box of matches. As you travel, the suitcase stays the same size spatially, but it gets heavier because like Mary Poppins' carpet bag, it has an endless capacity. And even if you really want to rid yourself of some of these items, you cannot. The best you can do is hide them underneath the ones that seem lighter. Once in a while, you stop on the road, 
at a roadside diner or local watering hole, and you meet someone. And you open your suitcases and start a dark game of show and tell, sharing scars and how you got them and what you learned from the cut. And once in a while, the weight of some of those things diminishes, as if by sharing the knowledge of the items, some of their density decreases. If you never play show and tell, the weight can become unbearable. In spite of the weight, you can never just leave your suitcase or any of its contents behind to pepper the highway like detritus. So we share. We tell our stories. We lighten our load. And we shuffle forward, some lurching, some dragging their suitcases behind like the heavy chains of Marley's ghost, some occasionally sharing at a truck stop or at the site of the world's largest ball of twine. You can tell who are the sharers, because they've traveled far, but the suitcases seem like compadres rather than burdens. On my inside right forearm is the ink. The road is life. And that's the third in my tattoo stories. I don't think they make me look slutty, but what do I know? Seriously, if you're enjoying this podcast, let someone know about it, even in passing. Share it to your Facebook or Twitter. Go to Apple and review it. Get it tattooed on your ass and moon some people, whatever. It all helps, right? Thanks for listening, and I'll be back next week. Peculiar Journeys is a weekly storytelling podcast produced, voiced, and edited by myself in my apartment above a bar in Wicker Park, Chicago. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or catch it on SoundCloud, or download it from DonHallChicago.com. You can assist Peculiar Journeys financially, if you can, by becoming a VIP patron on www.patreon.com slash peculiarjourneys. Peculiar Journeys.